All right, well, good morning, Bridgeway. How are we? We good? All right, hope you're having a great weekend so far. Very excited to dig into God's Word with you today. If we have not met, uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and glad you're here, and we're going to get into it this morning. So, so to start things out, uh, I just want to share, I don't know how many of you can relate to me, re- relate with me on this. There's some, so an element of myself that really irritates me, and there are many elements of me, that can be a little irritating. But an element of myself that, that really irritates me is how close to the surface of my consciousness stories of rejection and pain from my past seem to live. Like how little it takes in the course of my everyday life for me to be reminded of the pain of stories of rejection from my past. Like, for example, I've shared before from this stage that I was sort of a funny-looking kid. Some would argue, now a funny-looking grown-up, but we don't need to talk about that. I was sort of a funny-looking kid, so I got picked on a whole bunch. And it's just amazing to me how just something can happen in the course of my day, and it's like, all of a sudden, I am no longer an adult. I'm that sad, scared seven-year-old again, right? Or, or I think about uh, growing up, I played a lot of sports, but it was, not, it was not a great athlete and had some successes, but a lot of um, not successes. And, and I have memories of, you know, trying out for different sports teams and, and, and you go to tryouts and you do your best and then you come to school all nervous the next day because they're going to post the list of who made it to the next round or who made the team. And I just have the memory of walking up to the window and seeing the list. And my last name starts with a K. So when you're going down and it's in alphabetical order and it goes from H to L, guess I'll be doing something else this spring, <laughs> right? Or I remember at the end of high school, so I worked real, real hard in high school, tried to get good grades and do, and do all that, and get, got to the end, and I'm thinking about where do I want to go to school? And over the course of, of trying to figure out where I wanted to go to school, there was one place that I really just absolutely had my heart set on. I just, I kind of said to myself, this is the place. I'd, I'd gone to the tour, I'd bought the t-shirt, the whole thing, telling my friends, this is where I'm going. And I'd looked at, okay, what kind of grades and test scores do you have to have to get in? And then what kind of grades and test scores do you have to have to qualify for a scholarship that I was going to need if I was going to be able to go there? Because it was a private school that cost a lot of money. And and I'm thinking, I'm in. I'm looking at all the data from from past years. I'm like, yeah, I've got those numbers. I should be in. No problem. And acceptance came in the mail, and I'm all excited. I'm I'm getting ready. I'm thinking, man, this is where I'm going to spend the next four years of my life. And then I got the call from the financial aid office that I didn't get the scholarship and the money wasn't there. And looking back, it might seem like a small thing, but 19 year old me was devastated. This was the plan. And now it wasn't the plan anymore. Or I remember after college, I had the opportunity to go, to go work in Oceanside, California as a college and young adult pastor. And uh, long story short, but when I took the job with the church, there was an understanding between me and them that this was going to be a three-year job, that I was going to go and work at the church for the time that I was in seminary. So we knew from day one, three years, and then, and then we're moving on. So we get close to the end of those three years, and I start thinking, well, I better figure out what's next, right? So I'm applying for different jobs, and I'm sending out resumes, and there was this one job where it was a college pastor job right next 
next to a major university. It just seemed like an incredible opportunity, vibrant college ministry. Tons of people applied. I applied as well. I made it down to the final two candidates. I'd driven up to the place, which was, you know, it was a long drive, drove there multiple times for, for multiple interviews, made it down to the final two. And I remember they said, on this is the date. It was a Friday. I remember this. This is the date where we're going to let you know our decision, whether you got the job or not. And, and I figured phone call was probably good news. Email was probably bad news, right? Like that, that makes sense, right? So I'm at my desk trying to focus on actual work when the phone rings and I recognize the caller ID. And back then my office had kind of lousy cell service and I'm like, we're not letting that get in the way of this. So I grab my phone, I run downstairs, I run through a room, I run out the door, I take a quick breath so it doesn't sound like I've been running and I answer the phone, very excited and very confident. And the guy told me, we're choosing the other guy. And I just remember, I can picture it in my mind's eye like it was yesterday. I just remember out out the side of our church building and just sort of, you know, standing there and squatting down and just sort of giving myself a moment. And I got up and went inside. And 10 minutes later, I was supposed to be on stage leading some kids program. (laughs) We were doing that afternoon and found a way to still be enthusiastic. But I was so disappointed. And I remember this other job, very similar situation. College ministry right next to a major university seemed like an awesome setup. Over 100 people applied. This, this, the, the process just took forever. Interview after interview after interview. Made it down to the final two. Once again, was so confident I was going to be the guy. And I remember where my wife, were, why, why, my wife and I were and where we were driving when I saw an email come through and I had her read it to me. And it was an explanation about why they chose someone else, right? Or, or even in, 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 in the last, you know, five, seven years of my life, or, or, or actually really throughout my life as a, as a pastor, I'm, I'm so fortunate beyond anything I could ever hope to deserve in the way that so many of you and so many others just are so kind to me and supportive, and you share with me stories about how things that God's used, things that I've said in your life, and I, again, better than I could ever hope to deserve. But it is amazing to me, and maybe you can relate to this, that the compliments sort of register for a second, and then they kind of fly away. But there are emails I deleted years ago that I could probably recite from memory, from critics, right? And it's just amazing to me how that works. And here's the crazy thing about it. I look back at all of those situations and I can see clearly how God has redeemed every single one. I look back at the things I went through as a kid. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody, but I also wouldn't trade it. God used that to form me in such important ways to help me to be just a a kinder and more compassionate person, right? I I mean, I look at, you know, the sports stuff. It's like, okay, it was disappointing, but I I just, I think that came into perspective pretty easily. Or I look back at all the the college stuff and how I ended up going to UCLA and how, how honored I am to be a UCLA uh, alumnus, and I know our football team and basketball team stink, but I'm still so excited that I got to have that time in my life to be there. I mean, I met my wife at UCLA, and, and, and all my best lifelong friends are guys that I met at UCLA, and that was just such a memorable a memorable season of my life. And see, now it's kind of funny. I've started doing some adjunct teaching in the communications department over at William Jessup, and I'm trying not to be like the old curmudgeon saying to my students, going like, when I was your age, I was at public school with classes large enough that they could be their own town, you know? (laughs) But I'm so, so grateful. Don't have any regrets there at all.
And I look at the job failures, and it's so funny that I, I left out some stories there, but I had, it was just a long, a long road trying to figure out what was next after that time in Oceanside. And I started making this joke. Uh, if you're a football fan, you know that in the 1990s, the Buffalo Bills made it to four straight Super Bowls and didn't win any. I start, started calling myself the Buffalo Bills of job interviewing, right? Like made it right up to the end and no. But, 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 but listen, listen, I see, I see God's hand of protection in those cases. I see God's hand of guidance in those cases. And I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am so grateful that the door was closed in those situations. I wouldn't be here had that door been open. So many things in my life would have been different. I can look back honestly at all of these stories of rejection and I I'm grateful for how they turned out. But here's the thing. Even though that's true, the pain is still there. It's so weird to me. I still remember that pain. And here's why I share these stories with you, not for your sympathy. I mean, some of you are going like, yeah, that's a nice JV story of rejection. Let me, you know. I share these stories with you because I know you've got them too. That every single person I've ever met, every single person I've ever talked to about this subject has a story, usually multiple stories, of times when they were rejected, of times when they were told when they, that, that they weren't good enough. Each and every one of us, we carry the wounds of our unchosenness. And yes, I know that's not a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. We carry the wounds of our unchosenness with us. Every single one of us does that. So we're in the middle of a series called Connecting with God through the book of Ephesians. And in this series, what Pastor Lance said last week, I loved what he said last week, how he just said that through this series, whoever is teaching is going to be, we're just going to be sharing with you just about the character of God out of Ephesians chapter one. And we're going we're gonna to be showing you different gifts that God has for us as believers, gifts that he has for us as his children. And last week, Pastor Lance talked, it was so powerful. If you weren't here, listen to the podcast. It was so powerful. He talked about how God is a blessing God. And that there is so much for us if we would just get our heads out of being kind of consumed with what we lack and instead just have eyes to see God's blessings. It was so powerful. And what we're going to talk about this morning, what we're going to talk about this morning is a gift that God has for us that I believe if we let it, it can heal the wounds that have been caused by the rejection that we have faced. I can testify to this personally in my life. How do I quiet down the voices that try to remind me of that rejection by the truth I'm going to share with you this morning? It's that powerful and that wonderful. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, if you're using a blue Bible like this one, it's on page 976. Those are underneath the seat in front of you. You might want to grab the handout you received when you walked in, or if you want to take notes on the app or follow along in that manner, you can. Pastor Lance took us through one verse last week. We have three quarters of a verse this week. Next week is going to be wild. Pastor Lance will be doing two and one quarter verses. Hope we get out on time. Now it's going to be fantastic. So I've entitled this message, Chosen for Connection. Chosen for Connection. And I'm going to read verse 3, but we're going to focus on verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So here's the bad news. Each and every one of us has rejection stories. Sometimes many of them. We all have rejection stories. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. God chose us. There might be human no's in your life, but there is a divine yes that God chose us. And better yet, why did God choose us? The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you or on the app is this. God chose us because he loves us. God chose us because he loves us. People in this world may have told you no. God tells you yes. God welcomes you in. God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places chooses you chooses us to be part of his family. And I believe that if we let it, the divine yes can heal the wounds of any earthly no. The divine yes can heal the wounds of any earthly no. I really believe that. See, throughout scripture, we see that God is a choosing God. God chooses his people and he delights in them. There are many examples. I will just give you one briefly from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter seven. This is one example of many where God says to Israel, listen, you are my treasured possession. I have chosen you. He says this, God says this, Chapter seven, verse six, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but for you are fewer than all peoples. But it it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. This is a message throughout the Old Testament. Israel, God chose you. Israel, you're my treasured possession. Israel, out of all the nations of the earth, I chose you. And in the New Testament, there are so many different places where Paul talks about this idea, God has chosen us, God has chosen us, God has chosen us. Now, in talking about this, This raises what is probably one of the largest debates in the history of the Christian church. And it is the debate between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Or put differently, it is the debate between predestination and free will. If you're you're new to those terms, the idea behind predestination or divine sovereignty is that God chooses us. That God in eternity past chose who he would save and we don't really have a choice in the matter. God determines who he is going to choose. And then on the other side, there are those who say, well, no, no, we have free will and there's human responsibility. And ultimately, uh, God sent Jesus to earth and Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose from death and it is ultimately incumbent upon us to choose to believe that and to choose to believe that the gospel is true and it is for us. Those are, those are kind of Reader's Digest versions of the two sides of that debate. And I'm just gonna tell you, I'm not gonna get into the nuances of that debate this morning. What I want you to know is that wherever you are on that spectrum, if this is an issue that you've thought through and you're passionate about, if wherever you are on that spectrum, you are welcome here at Bridgeway and there is a place for you. And that there are places within a church like ours where we can debate theology and talk about things as brothers and sisters in Christ who are united by the gospel, not people who are going to divide over secondary issues, right? So there's a place for you wherever you are on that spectrum, and it's important that we all recognize that. 
So I'm not gonna get into the details of it. One more thing, sorry, before I move on that I just wanna make sure we recognize, especially if you're passionate about this issue. There are God-loving, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting people on both sides of this issue. Too often in theological conversations, one side will accuse the other of not really valuing God's word, and that's just simply not true. It, it is simply not true. So, the bottom line is, there are people all over the spectrum, but the important thing is that, God's, that, that on some level, I want to recognize this morning, without getting into the nuances of it, on some level, it seems that God does make a move towards us. In the language of the verse that we're going to talk about here is to say that God has chosen us. And when we let that truth into our wounded hearts, we can live out of our chosenness and not live out of our rejection and our pain. So if the big idea of the message this morning is that God chose us because he loves us. God chose us because he loves us. And in our missional communities this week, something you're going to talk about is just what are the practical implications of that? What difference does it make for your life as a follower of Jesus that God chose you? And then as we dis dissect this big idea that God chose us because he loves us, we're going to talk about three different questions. Number one, how did he choose us? Number two, when did he choose us? And number three, for what purpose did he choose us? And we're going to talk about the implications of all of those because there are significant implications to them. So first, we're going to talk about this question of how. How did God choose us? And to understand this, we have to look at this word, choose. The word is exelexato in Greek, which is really fun to say. I'm going to say it again, exelexato. And if you've never had the misfortune of studying Greek grammar, and it is a misfortune, let me tell you. Studying Greek grammar is to me a bit like what I imagine panning for gold would be like, but I've never actually done that where you're just sort of there, you got your dirt and your little thing and you're shaking it going, okay, boring, boring, don't care. What am I doing? I need to reevaluate my life choices. This is a waste of time. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Wow, oh my gosh, right? Like it goes from very boring to extremely exciting very quickly, right? I had that experience in Pete's coffee this week as I was looking at this word and studying for the message because this word is incredible and we can understand some amazing, it's just amazing information and I'm not going to bore you with the details of Greek grammar and jargon and all that, all that stuff, but there is so much that we can tell about, the, about how God has chosen us based on how this word is used here, how it's used in scripture and how it's used in other ancient literature and I'm just going to briefly give you some of what we can, we can know and I got a real thick commentary for you if you want to go into this in more de depth. Number one, God chose us with full awareness of other options. God chose us with full awareness of other options. Number two, God's choosing does not imply disdain or dislike or disinterest of others. It does not imply disdain or dislike. And then number three, this to me is the best thing that you can tell because of the voice and tense of this verb. That God's choosing is done with great personal care and interest. God's choosing is done with great personal care and interest. And I think about the culture in which this letter was written. 
The city of Ephesus, which was an honor-shame society if there ever was one. There was a huge emphasis on wealth and physical attractiveness. There was a huge divide between the haves and the have-nots. I know all of this is very hard to imagine, a culture being like that today, but just try to imagine. And that was a joke, yes. But that culture, again, honor, shame culture, so many people had been told their entire lives, you're not good enough, you're in a lower class, you don't have enough money, you're not attractive enough, da 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 and all this stuff. And what does God say through the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus? He says, listen, God chose you before the foundation of the world. That's a message that culture needed. That's a message our culture needs. Amen. See, in God's choosing of us, it is grounds for confidence, but not arrogance. And I'll get into that more in a moment. It is grounds for confidence, not arrogance. God's choosing of us is not something that was done because we deserved it or because we could claim that we were owed it. No, no. God chose us as an act of pure love and grace. God chose us because he loves us. God chose us and invited us into his family. He called us his children. He gave us an unshakable, unchanging identity. He chose us with great love and care. Why does this matter? Because when you and I, when we live out of our woundedness, it leaks. When we live out of our woundedness, when our, the dominant narrative that is playing in our minds is one that I'm not good enough or I've been rejected or I need to prove myself, all of this other stuff, it leaks, it impacts relationships, it makes us bitter, it makes us angry, it makes us insecure, it makes us desperate for attention, it makes us not even able to enjoy our lives in front of us because we're so busy posting about it so that other people can affirm how great our life is. And I'm not against posting, just for God's sake, live a little bit of life in between posts. You know what I'm saying? Again, again, not not hating on it. I'm just saying when we're relying on that to make us feel valuable, I think that's a problem, right? I was, I've been listening to some lectures this week by a researcher named Brene Brown. You might have heard of her. She's become pretty famous over the last couple of years. And I've, I've read a number of her books, and, and she's fantastic. And she's done some amazing work on vulnerability and shame. And, and, and specifically, I've been listening to some lectures on that subject from her this week. And the results of her research are just staggering to me. Uh, she talks about how many, many of us are simply unable to live as what she calls wholehearted people. And I love that expression. Wholehearted people. Because we're just so locked up in our shame. Because we're just so locked up in our shame. And listen, we we need to delineate, and she does a really good job of this, between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I have done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. That there is a place for us to recognize I've done wrong and I want to try to make it right. But shame is just toxic. Shame says I'm worthless. Shame says I'm no good. And and, and listen, when we live under a narrative of shame, you know this if you've struggled with this, it colors every single thing we do. It covers every 
colors every single thing we do. And listen, I don't want to oversimplify this because I recognize that for a lot of us, getting to the root of our shame and processing our shame and releasing our shame, it is exactly that. It's a process. It very well may involve a counselor or mental health professional and a long period of time. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but what I do need you to know is that the gospel has the power to free you from shame. That the gospel speaks a better story over your life than the story of shame. That because of what Jesus has done for you, because God has chosen you, the voice that can play in your head is not, "I'm, I'm, I'm shameful or I'm no good. The voice that plays in your head could be, God has chosen me because he loves me. That the gospel has the power to release us from shame. Shame says you're worthless. God says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. You have value. You can't even begin to understand. Whatever rejection you have faced, God's word for you is that he has chosen you. And it was not random. It was done with great personal care. He invites us to be a part of his family. Here's another thing Brene Brown said that has just been, man, I just can't shake it ever since I heard it. And it relates to what we're talking about. She talked about how love and belonging are irreducible human needs for men, women, and children. That was the language that she used. That love and belonging are irreducible human needs. And she said that when love and belonging are absent, there is always suffering. And sadly, I know in a room like this, many of us can attest to that reality. And I just think about how God invites us to belong. God invites us. He lovingly invites us to belong to his family. He wants to create love and belonging for us. And then what we can do is from that place of security, from that place of love and belonging, we can be men and women who seek to create love and belonging for others, right? See, I've talked about this from this stage so many times, and I'm going to keep talking about it because it's a big deal. But isolation is such an epidemic in our culture today. So many people don't feel loved and don't feel like they belong. But like they, like they belong, excuse me. But I just think the power of us as people who understand the gospel, the power of people who understand that God has invited us to belong. What if we were people who said, you know what? God has invited me to belong. I want to be the sort of person who is making the step to create belonging in my workplace or in my school or in my neighborhood. I think this is just so funny. I catch myself doing this all the time. I think so many of us, We live our whole lives sort of waiting for someone else to invite us to stuff. We live our whole lives thinking, well, I'm a mess. Someone with their act together is probably organizing something somewhere, and maybe I'll get to go or not. (laughs) And we're all thinking that, right? What if we were people who, out of a radical understanding of God's invitation to us to belong, that we were people who sought to create belonging for others? I think that's powerful. And I think the opportunity there is significant. God invites you to belong. It has the power to free you from shame. It has the power to make you the sort of person who creates belonging for others. One more element to this and we'll keep moving. In my opinion, one of the greatest spiritual writers of the 20th century was a Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen. And I've read a ton of his books and man, just benefited so much from from his writing and thinking. And he has this quote where he says, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. 
Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. I want to ask you, where, where do you what, what does the self-rejection narrative in your mind sound like? What, 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 what words are spoken in that self-rejection narrative as you allow that tape to play? Sorry for the dated metaphor. <laughs> what does self-rejection sound like? And what would it look like for the voice of God to overwhelm that voice? That no, 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 no. The dominant narrative over your life is not self-rejection. The dominant narrative over your life is your beloved. That God chose you before the foundation of the world. There is no rejection on this earth that could ever touch God's radical acceptance of you. That he calls you the beloved. He calls you the beloved. So how did God choose us with great love and care? What does that mean we're invited to belong? And then when did God choose us? You look at the text, it says, before the foundation of the world, this was not a last minute or rushed idea of God's, that before the foundation of the world, he thought of you, he thought of me, he thought of us, and had a plan in place for our redemption. This is an idea we see throughout the New Testament. We're not going to go to any other examples, but there are several others where, where God, where, excuse me, God speaking through Paul, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul in Scripture, talks about this idea of God having a plan from eternity past. And here's what that means. It means that God's choosing of you was not based on your performance. It was not something that you could earn. God loved you from the beginning before you ever lifted a finger. I don't know anybody who would ever say, you know what, before the foundation of the world, I was killing it. Man, you look at my resume before the foundation of the world, you know why God chose me. <laughs> like, it's so ridiculous, it's hardly even worth saying, right? God chose us before the foundation of the world, before we could ever do a thing. See, and that means that God's choosing of us, I mentioned this a moment ago, can give us confidence but not arrogance. Confidence because God's plan is perfect. Confidence because God is all-powerful. Confidence because God is not checking with his manager to get approval for the decisions that he is making. Do you understand me? That God's plan is perfect and eternal and cannot be stopped. You have confidence in that plan. But there's no arrogance. Why? Because it wasn't about you and anything you did to earn it. There is no, we cannot be confident in God's choosing of us. If you're a believer in Christ, you cannot be, you, or excuse me, you cannot be arrogant because of God's choosing, and choosing of us. Why? Because it was only because of his love and grace. It was not because of anything that we did. And I love, there are a few different places in scripture. I just want to take you to one briefly where Paul sort of talks about this with Different churches, the one I, I want to show you is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which you don't need to turn there, I'll just read you this passage, where he is helping the Corinthians recognize, you know, that God, God chose you. Don't get down on yourself. God chose you. He chose you out of great love, but also recognize he didn't choose you because of some accomplishment that you did. Here's what it says. Chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
See, we have a lot of reason to boast, just not in ourselves. We can boast in the goodness and kindness of God. How did God choose us? With great love and care. When did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world. And here are just a couple of practical implications for that. Number one, God's choosing makes it safer to be honest about our weakness. I can more readily admit my mistakes. I can more readily admit that I am, when I'm wrong, when I do wrong, when I act wrong, when I say wrong, because I know that ultimately God God has chosen me, that there is grace for me, that God is at work in me, and I can just be honest about ways that I screw up, knowing that my standing with God is not affected, but if anything, that God's grace is going to continue to help me grow as I acknowledge my shortcomings. And then the second is kind of similar. So I remember years ago, I was getting ready to speak. We were going to do a men's conference here at Bridgeway. And I'm getting ready to speak, trying to figure out what I'm going to talk about. And I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at like Amazon book deals because I read a lot of Kindle books. I think I've told you about this in the past. And I, and I see that there's some book on, 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 on manhood on sale. So I'm like, well, I'll read this. This might be helpful to me. It's a Christian book. And so I download the book and I start to read it in the Lincoln, in the Lincoln Public Library. And I get to the dedication page. And the author of the book, this is what he wrote. He had, he had young children, young sons. And the author of the book, this is what he wrote on the dedication page. He said, to my son, you have nothing to prove. And I about melted sitting there in the Lincoln Library. I'm getting goosebumps telling you about it all these years later. And I thought, as a, as a, first of all, as a father to, to young boys, What a powerful message I want them to hear from their father, that they have nothing to prove to me, that my love is theirs before they could ever lift a finger. But I think what an incredible picture of the way that our heavenly father looks at us. See, so many of us, we get so bent out of shape and defensive and angry, and we don't know how to apologize, and we get all in a huff and all this other stuff. Why? Because we live our lives feeling like we have to prove ourselves. When God says, no, no, I chose you before the foundation of the world. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. I think that's powerful. And why did God choose us? He chose us because he loves us. He chose us because he loves us. So how did he choose us with great love and care? When did he choose us before the foundation of the world? For what purpose did he choose us that we would be holy and blameless before him? To understand this, we need to go back to the previous phrase where it says he chose us before the foundation of the world so that, for the purpose that, we would become holy and blameless before him. Here's why that matters. God did not choose you because you already believed. God chose you that you might believe. God did not choose you because you were holy and blameless. God chose you that you might become holy and blameless. See, God chose you so that the Holy Spirit might do its work in your life to conform you to the image of his son. So the Spirit does the work to conform you to the image of the son, and it's all for the glory of the Father. That's how it works. God chose you before any of that. Once again, he didn't choose you because you were holy and blameless. He chose you so that you might become holy and blameless. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 8 through 10, which we'll talk about at the rate we're going in like four months. (laughs) By grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. 
Your salvation is pure grace. There was no action on your part. Pure grace on God's behalf. And then what does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. See, you are saved entirely by grace and you are created for good works, right? You are not saved by your good works. You and I, the purpose of our salvation is to be connected with our heavenly father and our purpose in terms of representing him on the earth is that we would, do peop- that we would be people who do good works to bring him glory and to show his character to the world. And see, there are two sides of holiness, two sides of being holy and blameless that are important. Number one is there is what is called positional holiness. And that refers to your standing before God. Positional holiness happens in an instant, the moment you believe. When you understand the gospel, that that God is God and that we are sinful humanity separated from God from our sin and that God in his gracious kindness, rather than condemning us for our sin, he sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life and he went to the cross and, and died on the cross and when he did that, he was paying the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future and then he rose from death to conquer Satan, sin, and death and to secure eternal life for us and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. See, the moment you believe that, you are made positionally holy. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange, that we exchange our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. The moment you believe that the gospel is true, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sinful imperfection, he sees Christ's perfection. That is positional holiness, and it is a beautiful thing, and we thank God for that. And when we are positionally holy, then the Holy Spirit begins the work of progressive holiness. See, when we are made positionally holy, the Bible says we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Or we just talked about during our time of worship through music, Ephesians chapter 2, this idea that we were dead and we were made alive, right? Positional holiness. Progressive holiness or practical holiness is a process. That is the process by which we begin to live out the identity that we have been given. That is the process by which the Holy Spirit begins to do work in our hearts so that we might live in joyful obedience to God. It's progressive holiness. So becoming holy is not an effort to earn anything. It is instead a response to the love that God has shown us. And see, something we're going to talk about this week in our groups, in our missional communities, is how do you understand holiness? What do you understand holiness to be? What does it mean practically to be holy? Because here's the thing, I, this is just, I, I, I get this sense from time to time, I think a lot of us, we, especially if you've been in church for a long period of time, like nobody's like anti-holiness. Nobody's like, you know what we need to be? Less holy. Like that would really help things out a lot. Like everybody, like I think on some level, if you're a believer in Christ, you recognize holiness is probably a good idea. It just doesn't sound that appealing. It's like eating broccoli. It's like, okay, I'm not going to dispute, it'd probably be good for me, but have you seen Skittles? Right? <laughs> And I just want to submit to you that if we don't desire holiness, I mean, part of that is just we're sinful people that have all messed up desires. That's that's part of it. But I think a bigger reason, if we don't desire holiness, it's because we don't understand it. Because it's easy to misunderstand holiness. There are plenty of caricatures of what holiness means, sort of holier than thou or self-righteous and everything else. When the fact of the matter is holiness is beautiful. 
Holiness is life as God intended it. Holiness is joyful. Holiness, dare I even say, is fun. (laughs) Holiness is humble. There's no no self-righteousness in holiness. And holiness can look so many different ways. A party can be holy. Do you recognize that? When people get together and just there's, there's, there's music and laughter and joy and food and drink and people are having a good time sharing stories, whether there's a Bible study going on or not, that can be holy, right? Time where we create space for belonging for one another, that can be holy. Or I'll, I'll give you just a dumb example. This is just something I've been thinking about a lot this month. So you know this if you know me at all, is that uh, in my family, we just, we love basketball. So basketball is being played or watched or talked about pretty much every day in basketball season in, in my home. We just, we just love it. And my son and I, uh, my, my, both of my sons, but mostly my older son and I, uh, we go to Kings games. Uh, pray for us. Uh, we're, we're, we're Kings fans. It is a miserable existence. And if you haven't picked this up yet, if you're not a sports person, the Kings are terrible this year. And I can get very, very cynical about the Kings. It is not that hard. And see, I'm a part of a group of people where we share season tickets. And it's in the month of January where I have to decide if I'm in for next year or not. So I've spent this whole month just like, do I do it again or not? And there's a big part of me that doesn't want to. But here's the thing. And I was talking about this with some friends and they helped me kind of remember this. See, when I go to a Kings game with my son, especially my older son, who loves basketball, during those four hours that we're gone from the time we leave our house to the time we get back, we're not fighting about homework, we're not arguing about bedtime, he's not picking on his brother, he's not doing any of that. We're talking the whole time. We get real nerdy watching the game, all right? It's hilarious watching people turn around at things that come out of my son's mouth as he like identifies the college that the other team's backup point guard attended. (laughs) You two spend too much time on this. (laughs) We talk about, it's constant interaction. We're not just staring at a screen or watching a show or whatever, constant interaction. And we talk about how things are going at school. We talk about his own basketball team. We talk about his friends. It's some of the best time we spend together. What's going on on the court? Praise God, doesn't matter. (laughs) Because what is going on on the court is profane, but... What's happening between my son and I is holy. So I think I'm going to go in for another year. And during that year, I'm really going to try hard to get my son to be into high school basketball. (laughs) Because we can accomplish all of that for a lot cheaper next year. But my point is this. I use basketball as an analogy because I love it. But see, when space is made for connection, that's holy. And all of us, we're built for it. We long for connection. Right? When we're serving God, it's holy. When we're experiencing the blessings of God, when we're thanking God, being out in nature, height, it's all of it. It can be holy when it's done for the praise of God. This, this quote just popped into my head. It's from the movie Chariots of Fire. I think I've shared this here before. Is that you can peel a spud to the glory of God if you peel it to perfection. That so many different things can be holy if we let them, that God has created a good and beautiful world and the call to holiness is a wonderful invitation. Holiness is not a drag. And if we think that holiness is a drag, we simply do not understand it. Last thing I wanna do, I wanna talk a little bit about this idea that he has chosen us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And to do that, 
I want to take you to my favorite chapter of my favorite book of the Bible, and that is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So if you want to turn there, I want you to see these words. They're such beautiful words. It's on page 944 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. And we're going to start in verse 28, but our main focus is going to be on verse 29 and 30. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Pause real quick. This has nothing to do with everything else we're talking about, but I know in a room this size, someone needs to hear this. What does Romans 8.28 teach us? It teaches us that God doesn't waste anything. That God is not the author of evil, and I am in no way trying to diminish whatever evil or suffering or pain is going on in your life right now. That is real, and it is brutal, and I recognize that. What I need you to know is, is there may be evil in the world, but nothing is beyond the power of God. And there is nothing going on in your life that God cannot take and redeem. God doesn't waste anything. That is such a powerful and important truth. Verse 29. Here's as it relates to the the passage we're looking at this morning. For those whom he foreknew, that's this idea that once again, at eternity past, God, God knew about you. And I don't mean God just knew about us. God knew about you. You as an individual human person, as surely as you have a unique fingerprint, God had a unique thought about you. God knows you. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. God had a plan from the beginning. God is not showing up in a hurry. God is not wondering what's going on. God's not, well, I wonder what next week's going to hold. We'll see, I guess. God had a plan from the beginning. What was that plan? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's plan in your life and mine is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be conformed to be like Jesus. And that is a process It can feel a little daunting if you're like, yeah, nope, not there yet, right? It is a process. And the most mature believers I know, people that have been faithfully following Jesus for longer than I've been alive, they know that they're in process. They know they're not there yet. They know that they've got a ways to go. But here's the thing. It is God's promise to you that the Spirit is working in your life to bring about that result. And it is a process. And it is a process. I love what what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to give you the Brian Kiley paraphrase where Paul basically says, I really want to live a life that is glorifying to God. And I also kind of (laughs) don't. If there is a more relatable passage of scripture, and go back and read it, read the inspired words, but that's the gist of what Paul says. If there's a more relatable passage of scripture, I haven't found it, right? That we constantly, we have this war within us of our own selfishness and greed and everything else. But God is working in us to conform us to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. He called to himself. One, One thing I love about church is hearing about all the different ways that God called people. See, some of you, if you'll you'll pardon the church cliche, some of you were born on a Tuesday and were in church on Sunday. And you've never known any different. Your whole life has been 
following Jesus. And you might think, oh, well, I have, you know, we call our stories of faith testimonies. You might say, oh, well, I have a boring testimony. I would say, first of all, no, you do not. You have a unique story of how God has worked in your life. And second, that is the testimony I hope my children have. So you have a beautiful testimony. Some of you, you lived a whole lot of life before you came to know Christ. Some of you, you're still trying to figure this out. Some of you, it was decades into your life before God got your attention and got a hold of your heart. Some of you, maybe you were like me or you can relate to my story, how as a 15-year-old freshman in high school, I just remember the, the dad of one of my buddies who was our small group leader at youth group, how he explained the gospel to me for the first time. And the Holy Spirit was like, bing, we're gonna turn the light on now. And a vaguely religious 15-year-old was just filled with passion and excitement for Jesus. Maybe your story is similar to that. But God calls us in so many different ways. And I'll tell you, as I reflect on my own story, what's really beautiful about it to me, and this is true for you as well, so so tell the same story for yourself. I didn't know God called me until I was a 15-year-old. God knew it before the creation of the world. That's just amazing to me. Those whom he called, he also justified. In other words, what is justified? What is justification? That God made us right with him. That our faith teaches us we are made right by God entirely by the actions of God who sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. Fundamental to our faith is the idea that we did not earn our justification. We did not accomplish our justification, but rather we are justified by Christ's work on our behalf. And I want to tell you, you you live in the real world, you see the same thing that I do, is that we live in a world that is obsessed and sick with self-justification. What do I mean by that? We live in a world where so many around us have bought into the lie that we have value based upon what we produce. That if only I can do enough or accomplish enough or be enough, then I will be of value. Then I will gain some approval that I don't even know whose approval I'm looking for. See, the story of our faith is, no, no, we are justified entirely, game over. We are justified completely by the work of God. We have an unshakable identity that God gives us. And from that place of a secure identity, we can then live in joyful obedience. We can think, we can seek to accomplish things in the world with the freedom that comes from knowing that our accomplishments do not define us, right? See, so many in our culture have it reversed, that we just, we fall into this belief that if I can do enough, then I will be significant. God says, no, 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 no. Don't self-justify. You're significant because I have justified you. So those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The end is sure. A day will come when the sin that holds you back loses its power over you. A day will come where those things that we do that just we look back on, and I have too many of these in my own life where we're just going, I could have handled that situation better will no longer be the case. A day will come when pain is gone. A a, a day will come where everything that would separate us from God is gone and we are connected to our creator. A day will come when all pain and grief and sadness and sorrow have no more say. We will be glorified because we will be in the presence of God. 
God who chose us in the past promises to glorify us because we will be with him in the future. And I want to tell you, that means we can trust him in the present because he chose you before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless before him. Amen.